When Jacob saw them, he said, This is the camp of God. So he named his place Mahanim. Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Sayyid, the country of Edom. He instructed them, This is what you say to my master Esau. Your servant Jacob says, I've been spending with Laban, and I've remained there till now. I've got cattle and donkeys and sheep and goats, men servants and maid servants. Now I am sending this message to my Lord, that I may find favour in your eyes. And when the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, We want your brother Esau. Now he's coming to me. And four hundred men are with him. In great fear and distress, Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups, and the flocks and herds and camels as well. And he thought, if he saw comes and attacks one group, the group that's left may escape. And Jacob prayed, Oh, God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, Oh Lord, who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I had only myself run across this Jordan, and now I have become two groups. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid he will come and attack. And also the mothers with their children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper, and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. He sent them up there. And from what he had with him, he selected a gift for his brothers. Two hundred female goats and twenty male goats, two hundred ewes and twenty rams. Thirty female camels with their young, forty cows and ten bulls, twenty female donkeys and ten male donkeys. He put them in care of his servants, each herd by itself. And said to his servants, Go ahead <laughs> And keep some space between the herds. And he instructed the one in the village, When my brother Esau meets you and asks, To whom do you belong? And where are you going? And who owns all these animals in front of you? Then you ought to say, They belong to your servant Jacob. They are a gift sent to my Lord Esau. And he's coming behind us. He also instructed the second, the third, and all the others who followed the herds. You ought to say the same thing to Esau when you meet him. And be sure to say, Your servant Jacob is coming behind us. But he thought, I'll pacify him with these gifts I'm sending on ahead. And later, when I see him, perhaps he will receive me. So Jacob's gifts went on ahead of him. But he himself spent the night in the camp. Thank you, Anita. <coughs> so we'll continue by singing song number 1753, Even Though I Walk. Please stand. Back to Jacob, who was a clever guy. Over the years, he'd 
become skillful at living by his wits and outsmarting his opponents. Some would call him devious. Certainly no one had ever got the better of him in the long run, not his older twin brother Esau, who foolishly had been tricked out of his birthright and his inheritance by his younger brother and their mother. Nor his uncle Laban, actually, who admittedly had got one over on Jacob at the beginning by making him work a total of 14 years in his service so that he could marry the girl of his dreams. But then Jacob had turned up on his doorstep with nothing but the staff he carried in his possession. But over the years since then, Laban and his sons had ruefully looked on as inexorably, it seemed, their wealth trickled out of their hands into Jacob's pocket. And eventually their resentment at his success grew to such a pitch that it was clear it was time for Jacob to go home. So he set out with his two wives, his two concubines, his twelve sons, however many daughters, his large flocks and herds of sheep, goats, camels, donkeys, not to mention men servants and maidservants. As he says in his prayer, I cross this river with nothing but my staff. Look what I'm bringing back with me. He was an exceedingly prosperous and successful and clever man. Yet the night before he meets his brother, we see him in great distress and fear over what the outcome of that might be. Despite all his wealth, despite all his achievements and success, he is still afraid because nothing of what he has, nothing of what he's done, is an effective antidote to the very human emotion of fear. Let me read you a poem called 500 Million Pounds, written by a poet called Steve Turner. It was written over 30 years ago. 500 million pounds was worth a lot more in those days than it is now. The Earl of Grosvenor has 500 million pounds. He's honeymooning in Hawaii. He has 500 million pounds. And he still has to honeymoon in the world. He's married Natalia. She's not my sort of girl. 500 million pounds. And he marries someone who's not my sort of girl. The Earl of Grosvenor carries a black case in his right hand. 500 million pounds. He still has to carry a black case in his right hand. It's probably heavy. He'll probably sweat. Damp patches will form beneath his arms as if he were a construction worker or an unemployed gentleman carrying a black case. I expect his shoes hurt sometimes. I expect he forgets his handkerchief. I expect he wonders whether Natalia really loves him. I expect he wonders what it would be like to have only £450 million. <laughs> the Earl of Grosvenor takes off. He wonders whether the engines will catch fire. He knows you can't pay engines off. He knows the ocean is indifferent to millionaires. Five hours in the air. 
and he's restless. 500 million pounds and he's restless. Jacob's anxiety is focused not on the risks involved in flying, but on the real dangers involved in meeting his brother, who the last time they'd seen each other had sworn to kill him. So, 500 million pounds, or vast quantities of flocks, sheep, goats, camels, donkeys, men servants and maidservants. You can understand why the news that Esau is coming to meet him with 400 men was enough to destabilise Jacob's equilibrium. All these years he spent ducking and diving and getting away with it, and now suddenly he feels like it might be the day of reckoning. And he's scared. And so he prays. As prayers go, it's a bit all over the place, really. Wavering between trying to find, trying to find reasons to put his confidence in God and just blatantly asking for self-preservation. He knows that God has been faithful and kind to him in the past, and he's acutely aware that this is far more than he's deserved. And there's a sense in which he can't quite believe that God would have told him to go home and promised that he would prosper there, and for that to work out with his family being slaughtered and all his possessions being stolen by his brother. So he tries to hold on to the idea that, that he's going home and God's in charge and, and that it will work all out all right in the end. But you know what it's like when you're afraid. However hard you look on the positive side, however hard you try and tell yourself, well, it's, you know, it doesn't, these fears are irrational, it doesn't make sense, you know, God's going to be there. There's always that nagging anxiety, yes, but what if? What if this or that happens? What if it all goes horribly wrong? And at that point in time, the threat from Esau was far more real than what Jacob thought God had told him in points of relative safety on the journey home. So Jacob prays. Does he have faith? Does he believe that God will answer his prayer or not? Opinions differ. Because having asked for God's protection on his family, he goes through this whole rigmarole of sending on these gifts ahead. You know, one flock and then another flock and then another herd and then some more. And each person is told, well, this is a gift from your servant Jacob to, to my Lord Esau. And he hopes that by doing that, he will appease, he will pacify his brother, he will mollify his brother. So that when it's finally, they finally meet, his brother will be so grateful, so impressed that he will let go of his anger and resentment. Some people have suggested that if Jacob had really trusted in God, he wouldn't have taken all these precautions. He would have prayed and gone to meet Esau in the confident expectation that it would be all right. I'm not convinced that that's the case. Praying is often not a matter of placing everything in God's hands and then whiling away the time waiting for him to do something. John Calvin said it was a sign of Jacob's faith that he didn't sit back and do nothing. There will be times when prayer can and should be a spur to action. I have prayed, therefore, because I have prayed, I will do this as part of trying to, to find a way through. William Carey put it this way, founder of the Baptist World Mission, expect great things from God, attempt 
great things for God. If you expect things from God in prayer, that will lead you to attempt things for God in action. The second follows on from the first. And it's interesting that Jacob addresses God as God of his grandfather Abraham and God of his father Isaac. Because Jacob, Jacob is a third generation believer. His was largely an inherited faith. And he could look back over years of God being with him and looking after him and taking care of him, but equally a lot of it was down to his own skill and his wisdom and his, his kind of deviousness. David Tracy talks about inherited faith and compares it to a fragile family monument, like a precious vase or chalice that's carefully passed down from one generation to the next. And the problem with inherited faith is that it breaks down. As if at some point the vase is dropped and shatters into a thousand pieces. And at that point the new generation have to decide whether they're going to bother with faith anymore, because it was their fathers and their grandfathers, is it relevant to them? Or are they going to find a faith that is inherently theirs and theirs alone? Not one that they just picked up from previous generations. And Tracy suggests that the time-honoured path of inheriting faith actually no longer serves the purposes of God. He talks about a deeper experience of faith which isn't based on unconscious family inheritance, religious routine, external performance of rituals, or automatic church attendance. Rather, this new experience of faith is based on existential grappling with the reality of the living God. Not something I've picked up from my parents, but it's something that's real to me, because I've wrestled with it and I've made it my own. It's personal. And that's what we see happening with Jacob in this passage. Up until now, a combination of his inherited faith and his own personal initiative has been enough to guide him through life. But now he's running out of road. And he needs to find a faith that's real and personal to himself. A faith that is a source of strength when the crunch time hits. And so he can take this picture of staying up all night to wrestle with this mysterious figure by the fort of Jabbok as a picture of Jacob's existential grappling with the reality of the living gods, as Tracy puts it. The figure he wrestles with isn't explicitly identified as such. Indeed, he refuses to give Jacob an answer when Jacob asks for his name. We could suppose that the figure, in some sense, personifies Jacob's own fears and demons. That would be natural enough as he wrestles in his mind with all the possible scenarios that could happen the following day when he meets with his brother. It could be an angel. Some have suggested he's wrestling with an ancient river god. Yet the stranger changes Jacob's name from Jacob, which means heel, I'm sure he was never very fond of that name, to Israel, which means fighting God. And tells him that he struggled with God and with men and has overcome. Jacob's struggles with his uncle are clearly documented in the preceding chapters of Genesis. But struggling with God, that can only refer to this nighttime wrestling match from which he emerges victorious but disabled. 
The man was unable to overpower Jacob, so he brought the fight to an end by dislocating Jacob's hip. But even then, Jacob refused to let him go, kept him locked in some kind of wrestling hold until he pronounced a blessing on him. As such, this episode is rightly seen as a vivid picture of what it means to struggle and wrestle with prayer and not give up until you secure some kind of answer or assurance from God. It's a picture of tenacity. It's a picture of perseverance. It's a picture of sweating it out all night, praying, until you reach a place where you can trust God now. This is no calm, confident, serene, committing everything into the hands of the almighty God of love. This is physical, mental and emotional struggle. Giving neither God nor yourself any rest until you reach a point of resolution. And what was Jacob's resolution? He receives no assurances as to the outcome of the following day's encounter. The mysterious figure doesn't say, Jacob is going to be alright, you don't need to worry, I've sorted it. Rather, the sun is already rising as he limps away from the river and as he lifts up his eyes, the first thing he sees is Esau coming towards him. So what's changed as a result of Jacob's sleepless night? He just knows he's seen God face to face and his life was spared. That's what happened. I've seen God face to face and my life was spared. And having been through that, actually Esau doesn't seem quite so scary anymore because the real trial has happened in that encounter with God. And having fought with God and and prayed and wrestled and encountered with God and survived, yeah, Esau, Esau isn't so much of a threat then. And sometimes that's how prayer works. You get no guarantees as to what the outcome of your prayers might be. But if you go to a place of real encounter with God, it can give you a different perspective on your fears. Sometimes it's like recognising that whatever happens, God is real. And the reality of God is more significant than anything else. Doesn't mean that everything's suddenly going to be alright, but the reality of the living God is so overwhelming that you get a sense of calmness that simply knows, comes from knowing that God is real and you've met him and he's there. There's almost a sense in which Jacob has seen God and his life was spared. So whether Esau spared his life or not the following day didn't matter because Jacob had seen God with his own eyes. And that was a life-changing moment for him. That kind of encounter with God isn't something that anyone can manufacture. It's not as if you can go through a series of prescribed steps and arrange your own personal appointment with God. Equally, a formulaic rehearsal of a praying routine is unlikely to bring you to the place where you meet with God in a real way. But if you want God to be real with you, you need to be real with God. Jacob was. The prospect of meeting Esau drove him to seek God in prayer because he was afraid. Because he was 
anxious and distressed. And the essence of his prayer is a desperate plea for self-preservation. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau. I'm afraid he's coming to attack me and also the mothers and their children. There's no pretense in that prayer. Because real prayer is just articulating our innermost emotions. Whether positive in praise or negative in fear and just telling God like it is. Because he is the one with whom you can be completely honest. And you can be assured of 100% confidentiality with him. He won't breathe a word to another soul about what you've confided in him. And he's available 24-7. So just be honest. Because what matters to you matters to him. Because you matter to him. And it's not the act of praying that's important. It's the God to whom you pray that counts. We're thinking about prayer over these coming weeks. And it's a good and right thing to do. But actually, you know, prayer is only a means of making that connection with the reality of God. And if you want to get to grips with prayer, it's reaching out to God. You need to do. Tell it like it is. When trouble's heading your way, he's the one you need to turn to. So that whenever, whatever it is you face hits the fan, you know that God is real. That God is right there with you. And because God is real and God is there, that can make all the difference in the world. I'm going to close with a prayer from Psalm 31. You may find that some of the words of the psalmist chime with your own situation. If they do, make his words your own. And with them, make the God to whom these words are addressed your own as well. Be merciful to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eyes grow weak with sorrow. My soul and my body with grief. My life is consumed by anguish and my years by groaning. My strength fails because of my affliction and my bones grow weak. Because of all my enemies, I am the utter contempt of my neighbours I'm a dread to my friends. Those who see me on the street flee from me. I'm forgotten by them, as though I were dead. I have become like broken pottery. For I hear the slander of many, there's terror on every side. They conspire against me, and plot to take my life. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hands. Deliver me from my enemies and from those who pursue me. Let your face shine on your servant.
save me in your unfailing love. Amen.